Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Rebellious Christians, and it is part of the Stretch Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Amen. Amen. We're going to, we're beginning a new series today. Uh, we're only going to, I'm only, you're going to get one sermon in the series, and then you're going to have a very special treat. We've got three guest speakers lined up uh, for the next three weeks. So Crystal Tullis, uh, you heard Tyler tell us a couple of weeks ago, her husband, he, she's going to be preaching next Sunday. And she's a great preacher. She's an excellent preacher. So you're going to enjoy Crystal and uh, a good Texas girl. Uh, and uh, you're also, the following week, uh, uh, John Wiersma, our own John Wiersma, is going to be giving this message. And then week three, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, executive pastor down in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Eliza Perez, is going to be giving the message. So that's what's coming so this is a little odd to preach one sermon in a series and then, then take uh, three weeks off, but we'll be back. Uh, we're going to start, we're going to preach from the book of Jonah. We're going to call this series Stretch. Uh, how many of you know that when you come and give your life to Christ, He accepts you just like you are, but He doesn't intend to leave you like you are. Amen. When you come to give your life to Christ, He intends to stretch you into the image of Christ. So I'm going to read, first of all, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, a lot of scripture this morning, so bear with me. I shouldn't say bear with me because it's wonderful. Scripture is wonderful, isn't it? So uh, let's, let's enjoy the scripture. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put up the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace, and to be thankful and let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, this passage from Colossians 3 and a whole lot of other passages begs the question. And the question is, why is Apostle Paul urging Christians to do 
what we all know is normal Christian behavior. Well, it proves a few things. Number one, it proves that we're saved by grace. Because God saves us when we're still doing all that stuff. God saves us when we're still behaving badly. He accepts us, right? And secondly of all, it proves that God intends to stretch us into the shape of Christ. You know, there's an economic principle in the world which uh, tends to have a negative impact, and that is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It is an economic principle that it's very hard to change. And it's creating part of the problems in our society today because when you have resources, you have money, you have resources, you know it's easier to get more money. When you have resources, it positions you to get more. When you don't have any resources and don't have any money, you're on the bottom, it's hard to climb out. And so that's part of the problem that we're grappling with today. And uh, we need to keep working at it. But spiritually speaking, this is a very positive principle. The same principle works in the spirit. And spiritually speaking, the rich get richer spiritually and the poor get poorer spiritually. The good thing about this is because of the grace of God, anybody in this room can go from being poor to rich spiritually like that. Because once you put your faith in Christ and you believe in Christ and you submit your life to him, then you're part, of the, you're part of the privileged children of God. Everybody has access to being a privileged ch child of God. You see, the, 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 the kingdom of the world talks about power. Who has power? Who doesn't have power? That's not the conversation for the Christian. The conversation for the Christian is not who has power and who doesn't have power. The conversation for the Christian is who's in the kingdom and who's not. And our goal is to bring everybody into the kingdom of God through the grace of God and the mercy of God. So, God loves us the way we are, but he doesn't want to leave us the way we are. See, here's the thing about all those scriptures, all those scriptures in Colossians, and I could go to a bunch of places. Um, all the all this mess, all the mess that the New Testament deals with. You ever read the Bible? And you think, there's a lot of mess going on. Ephesians. Colossians, Corinthians. Man, that required two books to deal with that mess. Did you ever think about the fact that all the mess, all the immorality that's addressed in the, new, in the epistles, almost every bit of it, a little bit of it not, but almost every bit of it is about Christians. And some of you say, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrites down in the church. There's worse than that at the church. Not just hypocrites. I mean, there are people that are um, all, all, all levels of mess, Steve, in the church. Because, because that's, the, that's the whole idea. That's the whole idea that God takes messed up people who are still behaving badly, and he gives them a context. He gives them a framework to begin to change their lives and to stretch them into the image of Christ. Exhibit A we're going to use for this series is a guy named Jonah. Jonah was a man of God, and he was really rebellious. So we're going to talk today about rebellious Christians. Joyce Meyer said the other day in a blog, why am I so rebellious? 
She goes on to write, There were many years in my Christian life when I was stubborn and rebellious. How rebellious was I, she asked. It took me about three years for me to learn to submit to the Holy Spirit's direction to put my grocery cart where it belongs in the parking lot. <laughs> I like Joyce. John chapter one, Jonah chapter 1. Let's read about Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amnon. Can I get that water? I don't know where it is. It's probably out there somewhere. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee. Here's the man of God, God's man, to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break it up. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that you will not, we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? See, apparently this storm, there was, these guys were professional sailors, so they were pretty good at predicting storms. They could see the sky. They could feel the wind. They could see that this one happened in such a way that they knew it had supernatural origins. So uh, what have you done? Uh, and, and they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Susie. I can't figure that out. Hey, guys, I'm running from the Lord. How, how did that conversation happen? I don't know. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said, pick me up, throw me into the sea. And he replied, it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. See, they were better than Jonah. But they, did, they, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not take, let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard. The raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What's the book of Jonah about? Well, it's about a God who is justified in sending judgment but loves mercy. The book of Jonah is about the call to relate redemptively to people who hurt us or who we believe could hurt us. It's the, the book of Jonah is about the call to put ourselves in proximity to people who are different than us. The book of Jonah is about the call to give everyone we know the chance to be saved. The book of Jonah is about a God who is both tribal and global. God, who approves of us loving our, our own, our family, which is the smallest tribe we belong to, those of our religious affiliation, our church, God approves of that. Our nation, 
God also wants us to go to the world. He loves the world and wants us to go to the world with his news. The book of Jonah is about a man who believed that God was just too nice and he needed to control him. <laughs> the book of Jonah is about the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. Some of you know that story. Luke chapter 15, we have the prodigal son who went away and spent all this money on riotous living and rebelled openly against his father. And we have the elder brother who didn't rebel openly, but he stayed in the house and he had a bad attitude and he was a bigot. In the first half of the book, Jonah is the prodigal son. In the second half of the book, he's the elder brother. The book of Jonah is about a man who was challenged by his own self-absorption but also sent, also, thank you, Steve, also sent to a world that he was called to love, but also rebuke. It's a very important point. You see, when you have become a child of God and you've belonged to the kingdom of God, you don't really totally fit in anywhere because you are a child of God and you belong to the kingdom of God. You will never be woke enough for the woke religionist and you will never be exclusive enough for the hyper-nationalist and the white supremacist or the racial supremacist. You will never be either. You will always be at odds with both groups because you belong to God. You are God's child and you are with, with his message and you are knowing that the restoration of all things is, is rest under the sovereignty of God. Now let's think about Jonah for a minute. He was obviously a spiritual man, right? He had to be a spiritual man for God to give him the title prophet. He had to be a person with certain social abilities and skills to be able to relate to kings and uh, uh, military officials and the leaders of the land. A prophet was a very important character in Israel in those days. He had to be, he had to have intellectual qualifications because he had to have intricate, intricate understanding of the law and the laws of Moses. So he had to have high intellectual ability. He was God's man. He was God's anointed, but he still had a serious heart problem. He was not a person who easily let God have his way. Any of you Christians relate to that? Any of you followers of Christ relate to that? That you're not a person who easily lets God have their way. Jonah was the type of guy who, when the congregation sang, I surrender all, he sang, I surrender some. Now, let's talk about this. Rebellion among good people. Because we, I'm talking about us today. I'm not talking about anybody in the news, anybody in the political scene. I'm talking about us. Why is it logical for us to be rebellious? Well, remember the shock the first time your lovely, amazing, beautiful child defied you? Remember the shock that this cute, little, unbelievably perfect human being would look you in the face and say, No, I'm not going to bed. No, I'm not going to eat that. No. Ellie was over at our house the other night and she 
did not want to go to sleep. And of course, we didn't make her because we're grandparents. <laughs> but she said, where's Mr. Son? I won't miss the sun. I won't miss the sun. I don't want Mr. Moon. I, don't want, I won't miss the sun. In other words, I want it to be daylight and I want to stay awake. And she did stay awake as long as she wanted to. So it's Jay and American Deer with the Rebellion. Tim Keller makes this statement in the context of Jonah. When God guides outside our wishes, we have to decide, we do know best or does God know best? The default mode of the human heart is to decide that we do. Adam and Eve decided if they couldn't think of a good reason for God's command, there must not be one. Jonah was called to go east overland, three-day walk to Nineveh. He boarded a boat going west to Tarshish. Tarshish was on the outermost rim of the western rim of the world. Jonah was sent to the big city, so he bought a ticket to the country, the rural region at the end of the world. Jonah thought God's assignment made neither practical nor theological sense. Now, let's give him a little bit of a break. Nineveh was a rough place. It was a rough crowd. Nineveh was a city on the Tigris River. It's modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It was the largest city in the world, 100 to 150,000 people. The emperor uh, Shalmaneser III was such a cruel man that he would, he would do things like take his captives, he would cut all of their limbs off except for one arm. That's so he could shake their hand as they died. He would decapitate everyone's head, and then he would have the loved ones of, and friends of those heads he decapitated put the, cat, put the heads on poles and parade them around the town. He would skin people alive. He would take, burn adolescents alive. He uh, would, would, uh, would, uh, would enact, would, 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 would subject, I'm trying to say, people to really torturous slavery. It's just unimaginable the things that he would do to people. And, and he, would, he, would, he would have all of this put on stone relief tablets. He would have pictures made on stone relief tablets in order to incite terror. And he had turned his whole city into a terrorist organization. This whole city, they were killing each other. They were, there were murders among, among the Ninevites in the city of Nineveh. Everything was a mess. And, and not only that, but he invaded Israel in the northern part of Israel and just completely destroyed Samaria. He, he imposed a tax on Israel that they had to pay a tax, like protection money from him. And no wonder Jonah said, no, I do not want to go to Nineveh. No wonder he took a boat when God said, take a walk. No wonder he went west when God said, go east. No wonder he headed for the country when God said, go to the city. In fact, uh, Jonah did what we Christians do sometimes. He, he found scripture to support his rebellion. Because there was a scripture, a prophetic scripture, in the book of, you can find it in the book of Nahum, where the prophet Nahum, who had been previous to Jonah, had prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed. you got to be careful as a Christian. One of the things that will come to your rescue when you want to disobey God is you will find scripture. 
you will always find scripture that supports what you want to do. You know, I used to, uh, w- w- you know, w- we've always tried to be a healthy church. And we've, we've made a mess of it at times. We've made mistakes. But we've, I, I can remember years ago, w- we would see someone doing something destructive with their life. And we would go to them and we would talk to them. And we'd take the Bible and to them. And not, not just to me, but other, other leaders in this church. And you know what we would often hear? They always had a verse ready. And the verse was, the Bible says you mustn't judge. <laughs> and I would think, you know, being the logical person that I am, I thought, well, fine, I can clear this up. And so I would preach a sermon. And I would preach a sermon about biblical and unbiblical judging. That there's a biblical form of judging and there's an unbiblical. There's a Christian form of justice. Because the Bible says, yes, the Bible does say, the Bible say, does say you mustn't judge in a couple of places. And it, but it uses a particular Greek word that means to condemn, conclude. In other words, you write somebody off. But then there's these other verses, and the Bible says in one place, he that's spiritual judgeth all things. Right? And that's a different, that's the Greek word anachrino, which means to ask questions, investigate, and evaluate. The Bible says, by your fruit we shall know them. So we, I, would, I would preach that, and I would think, it's all set now. They, they will get in line now, because I just explained to them, logically, why, why judging. I mean, judging is a very logical thing. You know, I, I had a, a, a knee pain a couple of weeks ago, and so I finally, uh, you know, uh, family is compassionate up to a point and then after a while they want you to shut up and go to the doctor (laughs) that kind of happened to me is go to the doctor so I finally go to the doctor and they x-ray it and I go see the orthopedic guy and he puts my knee up on the screen and I see the bone spurs here that's causing the pain right and uh, I didn't go you're judging me you're judging my knee how dare you judge me and tell me my knee is bad? <laughs> you know? So I, I would give that logical explanation. I would think, I, I got it. Now we're going to be all set as a church. Never worked. Because the people, when, when you are rebellious and you're using scripture to affirm your rebellion, you are ideologically possessed. And so no one's going to change your mind. Because you decided what you believed before you found a verse of scripture that approved it. I've heard a lot of things. A lady came to me one time because we had in our first church, we had a a very dark-skinned Puerto Rican. Sorry, Steve. (laughs) A very dark-skinned Puerto Rican who was dating a very blonde-headed white girl. And she looked like she came right out of Norway, man. Yeah, right. Perfect, perfect. (laughs) You'll love this. This lady of the church came to me and she said, you know, Pastor, the Bible says that people are to stay with their own kind. (laughs) I said, where is that in the Bible? See, it's really rebellious when you make up scriptures. But that, that's the best thing that some Christians like to do is make up verses that aren't in the Bible. Of course, that's not in the, in the Bible. Nothing even close to that's in the Word, Word of God. So uh, that was a long time uh, uh, before the current conversation was happening, but I knew enough to shut her down. Um, so, you know, I've heard all kinds. Of, I've heard that someone said that the Bible says, you know, women, wives do not have to love their husbands. 
Because Ephesians 5 just says husbands love their wives. I, I heard that. I actually heard that. And, and uh, Chris, that's, that's ludicrous because there's this other place in the Bible that says that the women, older women are to, are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. So uh, you, can, you can support your rebellion with Scripture. In fact, there's this great verse in 2 Peter, Peter chapter 3, verse 16, that says his letters, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. As we look at Jonah, we also see there's two ways to be rebellious. You can be rebellious by being very sinful or very sensual. You can also be very rebellious by being very religious. That's kind of the person that I talked to who gave me that scripture that didn't exist. She was being very religious. Flannery O'Connor describes one of his fictional characters, Hazel Motes, as knowing that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. But that is not the way to move forward with him in a grateful way, a grateful joy, glad surrender and love, but instead it's a way of keeping him at arm's length. See, see some people, it, it just would be, it would be better if they sinned and they faced their sin and humbled themselves rather than never sinning in their own minds and having a religious experience that really causes them to be Christian rebels. Steve McVeigh said this, I love this, grace is irrational to the thinker. It is unfair to the judge. Grace is foolishness to the achiever. It is a waste to the selfish. It is a mistake to the disciplinarian. It is a shame to the religionist. It is a stream of water to the thirsty. It is freedom to the imprisoned. It is life to the dead. Grace is rest to the tired. It is another chance to the failed. It is hope to the despondent. It is a way out for the lost and a way, and a, and a way in for those who can see the door. Love is holy. Marilyn Robbins said, said, because it is like grace. The worthiness of his, of his object never, is never really what matters. Jonah didn't get this. Jonah was a rebellious Christian. He wasn't a Christian, but he had a covenant relationship with God, and he was a forerunner of what a Christian would be. I love this this week. I, I saw a mother tweet this out, and I thought it was so fantastic. She said, and I understand it. She said, I'm completely obsessed with my child. I'm so in love with him, I can't believe it because I spent so many years not wanting kids. The kid has made me smile so big, it's a crazy kind of love. Now let's think about Jonah. Jonah felt that way about Israel. He did not understand that God felt that way about everybody. God felt that way about Ninevites. God felt that way about those sailors. God felt that way. That leads me to what I think is the core of Christian rebellion. Christian rebellion makes us oblivious to the common good. Hear me out today. Christian rebellion makes us oblivious to the common good in people that God deeply loves. In Jonah chapter 1, you get around verse 4 or 5, the sailors go to find Jonah. And what's he doing? Jonah is asleep. Jonah is not caring. He's oblivious to the common good. He's oblivious to the health and welfare 
of people that he didn't care about, of people that he, he, his, he wasn't concerned about their safety or their common good. A, a mark of a rebellious Christian is that they are unwilling to work for the common good in all circumstances. God's yielded servants always work for the common good wherever they go. Wherever they go, they work for the common good. A rebellion is a very, rebelliousness is a very selfish attitude. Rebelliousness circles the world down to its very smallest common, very smallest denominator in your life. Love, which is the opposite of rebellion, love causes you to care about the common good. When, when, when a yielded Christian, a yielded servant of God walks into their home, they are concerned about everybody in the home. They're concerned about the state of the home. They're concerned about the state of the yard. They're concerned about everything. Everything matters to the yielded Christian, the yielded servant of God. When a, when a yielded Christian, a yielded servant of God steps outside their house in their neighborhood, they are concerned about the common good. Not just whether everybody gets saved or not, or everybody becomes a Christian, or everybody get, enters into a saving relationship with God. They're concerned about all things related to the common good of everybody in the neighborhood. When a yielded servant of God and a yielded Christian steps into their church on a Sunday morning, they're not just concerned about the family that's sitting around them or the best friends that are sitting around them. They're concerned about the common good of that house and of that church and of all the people in that church and everything about that church. They are concerned about the common good of everything. A yielded servant of God, a yielded Christian steps into the world and cares about the common good of the world around them. This is something that we've tried to build into the DNA of Bethany Community Church over the last 30 years. That we will step into our community and we will care about the common good of every person in that community. Everything from whether they have food to eat to whether they have a place to live, to whether they have friends and they have a, a life. See, Christians care, yielded Christians care about the common good. Jesus, think about Jesus. Jesus did not just go, and, and, and I'm not minimizing the need for conversion, but Jesus did, just not just, did, did, did not just come into the world creating converts. The Bible says that Jesus went everywhere doing good and healing all not just the people who accepted him as savior not just the people who believed he was god but he went healing all who were oppressed of the devil this is the call of god and this is what revival looks like revival always looks like a move toward god and a greater love for god a submission to god and then revival spills out of the church into the world on the day of Pentecost, they could not contain that revival in the upper room. It wasn't just 120 people who became a little bless me club, who began to bless each other for the next 30, 40 years, who stayed together and became a great little church. No, it became a revolution in the community of Jerusalem. And they began to care about the common good. Immediately, everybody who came into that community began to be cared about. Widows begin to be cared about. You see, I, let me tell you something. You do not have the influence or the platform to fix the national conversation. You don't have the influence or the platform, and neither do I, 
to change the global agenda. And God's not asking you to. God will not ask you to do what you don't have the power to do. God will not ask you to feel responsible for, for what you cannot change. But, but I'll tell you one thing we can do, Bethany. One thing we can do. One thing we can do is we can make sure, we can make sure every weekend that not one person walks in here and remains lonely and alone. We can make sure that no one who comes in our sphere of influence is neglected. We can do that. See, churches, churches have a tendency, and all groups have a tendency to stratify. We have a tendency to stratify. Not so much uh, necessarily in the area of, of race as, as economics. We stratify. The people that can afford one form of entertainment, they tend to stratify. And it's, it's natural. You, you can't totally avoid it, by the way. It's natural. It's just something that happens. It's just something that happens in, in, when, when groups of people get together. But I'll tell you what. If you'll stop sleeping in the boat, if you'll stop sleeping, if you'll stop sleeping the sleep, the sleep of tribalism, if you'll stop sleeping, sleeping, sleeping the sleep of tribalism, and wake up and make sure that you're not leaving people behind in your life. And make sure you actually, let's just use this room for instance. Make sure you're looking around this place. Make sure your eyes are open, your head's up, you're looking. Who is being left alone? Who's being neglected? Who's not being cared for? But listen to this. I know you all want to be a great evangelist. Who is not actually hearing the gospel explained to them? You think everybody that comes in here understands the gospel? They do not. And it's impossible for a preacher to preach to his congregation and every Sunday re-explain the gospel. I need you to explain the gospel to them. I need you to, to get close to them. I need you to take them out for coffee. I need you to take them out to lunch and sh share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that's available to them to save their souls eternally. Do you care? I, I need an amen there. Amen. Made me nervous. <laughs> Here's the good news, though. God always ends on a positive, right? This is, this is not about this is not about making everybody happy with us. You're going to have people that aren't going to be happy with you. They're not going to be happy with your gospel. They're not going to be happy with your scripture. They're not going to be happy. This is not about the Bible says beware when all men speak well of you. Beware when all men speak well of you. I'm not trying to make everybody happy. I'm not trying to make everybody in this world accept me. I'm not trying to make everybody think I'm cool. I'm committed to one thing, and that's to be what Jesus was. I want to be the reflection of Jesus. I'm not there yet, guys. I'm still a rebellious Christian too. But I want to get there, to the place that I am a reflection of the beauty of Jesus. Now here's the good news. God doesn't give up on rebellious believers, but is completely committed to their healing. You know, I've been telling that story for the last 20 years about my mother coming to this when I was rebellious as a teenager, reading that verse to me. I'm going to read that verse that she read to me, and you'll see why I would have rather had a beating than that verse. She walks into my room. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. 
I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. You know what's great about the story of Jonah? Yeah, God loved the Ninevites, that's true. That was pretty amazing, I don't get that. God loved those cruel terrorists, Ninevites. But God loved Jonah. God refused to give up on Jonah. And all you rebellious Christians out there that are listening to me right now, God really is crazy about you. He's not going to let you go. You just messed up. You shouldn't have signed up. You shouldn't have signed up because God's going to keep coming after you. You keep trying to run away from God. You kind of go and you do the world's thing and everybody else's thing. God's going to find you in the boat you got on to leave him. God's going to find you where you're running from his will. He is not deterred. He is not. Notice with Jonah. You, you, go read the book of Jonah. you got three weeks to read it. You Surely you can read four chapters three weeks. Go read the book of Jonah. And you see God just never got tired of dealing with Jonah. I get tired of dealing with Jonah. I couldn't have done it. But God is so magnanimous that all you rebellious Christians out here this morning, all us rebellious Christians, God really loves us. See, the gospel is not just for sinners. The gospel is for Christians.